0: Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Culbertson. I'm super excited today. This is my first filmmaker interview. I have Cyril Scheublin, who is the director of the new film called Unrest or Unrua. Do I have that pronunciation right?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Close
0: enough. Unrua, which is a film about uh, the anarchist moment in the Jura Mountains when Swiss. Uh, watchmakers were organizing we're really creating what we think of as anarchism today but had been in switzerland earlier and then later kropotkin came as a young man it's where kropotkin became an anarchist in switzerland and he was incredibly inspired the film opens with this quote that these uh swiss watchmakers were his inspiration to understanding anarchism and my guest today has made this film about this moment when Kropotkin is in in the Swiss canton of Jura and, and coming to his awareness, although the movie is much more a, I would say this moment in time rather than the following of Kropotkin's journey. So I guess now I've made an artistic claim about the film. So does that sound right to you, Cyril?
1: That sounds right. That sounds right. Yes, yes.
0: So I'll just begin by saying I really appreciated this film, uh I, I can't I can't believe, frankly, how striking it was. I must say I had not seen your previous film, uh, Those Who Will Be Fine, I think is the English translation. Um I watched that one as well, and I just they, they struck me both as masterpieces, Cyril. So you can blush or thank you say so much. Whatever. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> yeah. no, they were. They, they but no, your um your whatever I want to call it, your cinematic style, the 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 language of alienation, I would say, and then the sort of fragile human at the center of this alienation, as well as your combination of these extreme close ups, either on the object or the human. It's this these movies, I thought both them were in a fairly similar style, Cyril. uh, Combine this sense of human alienation and this sense of intimacy even as it's sort of an alienated intimacy and that for me really captured something uh, important in um, those who are fine about how we how we are living today. I want to maybe I'll have you back to do a whole show about those who are fine because I have much to say about it but um, it it seems to me that uh, in unrest you've really captured this moment as well and found all sorts of ways that the past is a foreign country. Um, and also that the past is very much the present right now in the sort of Faulkner sense. So I guess I've just been saying your Mm. movies are great. At this point, do you have anything to say in response to what I've been saying?
1: Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I mean, also what you say about this alienation. um, I think what was really important to us or to me was to kind of try to find um, or let's say, I was imagining that people in the past, so to say, like in the 19th century, always or also had a kind of a routine, everyday kind of language that they were speaking, and not this maybe somehow kind of important or even pathetic sounding kind of language that we sometimes can hear in historical movies. Um, but it was really important to to imagine their kind of yeah, maybe like a marginal language that was just spoken by the people and um, that was really important so to 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 find or discover such such a language in, st- in the past instead of trying to have very meaningful dialogues, maybe, but just people trying to, Trying to put in words what they what they're thinking or doing, you know. And uh, I think because yeah, this I think language often, um, especially when it's not scripted in movies, but when we use it, it's um, it's uh, it's uh, something like a process, or we, we're searching for for something, trying to um, verbalize it, and. Within this trying to say something, I think it's um, it's always fragile and 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 often alienating to be a human being and trying to to verbalize it, and that's where for me it becomes interesting. Um, yeah, this human co-inhabited thing called life, or I don't know, that we can share. Yeah. Oh,
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, I I do want to capture the way that this um, this attempt at f- at fumbling towards uh, fumbling towards humanity is is very much um, <laughs> circumscribed in in the film by by both technology and the and the social situation. So, one thing I wanted to bring up in terms of you know finding this moment in the past. Well, first I'll say. Uh, My work was on the late 19th century in America, and it was in precisely this way. I wanted to find the way that people were making sense of the world around them in a way that did not accord with our sense of, you know, the sort of grandiose historical narratives we might have gotten. And one of my exemplars was Theodore Dreiser. One of my professors would always say uh, Dreiser would go, in his novels, he would describe the department store. And he was interested in what the girl behind the counter at the department store was thinking and where she came from. And that is frankly an an astonishing thing to do. And the fact that Dreiser turned this into best-selling novels is extraordinary. And we don't think of the department mm-hmm. store as having a past, or maybe we do now because the department store is kind of dying out, but we don't think of yeah. it having been invented. We don't think of someone walking into a department store and wondering, wow, look at this world around me. Isn't it strange? Isn't it unusual? Aren't things changing? Because anyone our mm-hmm. age, you know, the department store's heyday was before we were born, but the department store was new for Dreiser. And he was like, look, hey guys, look at look at this thing. And then he found the, the humanity behind the, the, the girl who was not supposed to be a person or maybe was in some way supposed to be sort of flirtatious or something and that it seems to me that was mm. part of your project as well if that if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah that's really interesting i mean especially this kind of um yeah can be such a place that if just described or i mean in general i think okay let's talk about switzerland but i think it's it's getting more um, similar everywhere but um i think it was definitely one of the one, one of my key wishes let's say with this film to show to maybe try to show the construction that we live in today and that it is a construction and not a not just like a given that like ideas like the the, the you know the, the the time concept this concept of time that we integrated so much into our organization of society like our schedules our uh, everything is based on this on this concept of time which was kind of of course invented a long time ago but sort of um, precised and um, you know became like a really mass um, merchandise technology in the 19th century and yeah to 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 somehow bring attention to the fact that this is a construction and like capitalism itself that we live in a in a constructed um system which is not the end although it's really hard i guess to to imagine another um yeah another uh, way of organizing ourselves right now but yeah it's I think it's a start when when you realize again, how constructed everything is that we that we do and that we use together. And mm, yeah, that's a start. It gives you an option, I guess. Yeah, that's what was what, what, the wish. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. The idea that it is that it is constructed. So um, again, I'm caught with this for me with this doubleness, this, you know, that I've been saying the past isn't dead, it isn't even past, and also the past is a foreign country, because mm. one of the things that's, um I think will, will be shocking to people who don't know this era as well, is that all the different times that are operating, um, so uh, something I haven't covered yet, and Lewis Mumford, who's a sort of anarchist adjacent American writer, has written about this extensively with time, but at once upon a time, so there's this sense in, especially in people like Kropotkin, that the village of the past is the is the correct unit, and everything we've gotten since then is is bad. It's a combination of you know feudalism and capitalism and everything. And when when we started having trains in the 19th century, and trains could go fast, Cyril, I'm sure the story is familiar to you, but I don't know if it'll be familiar to all the listeners. There was a problem because uh, noon. in any particular town was where the sun was at the highest point of the sky. So if a train left at noon and traveled fast enough, it could arrive at the next town also at noon, um, depending on which way it was going. And this just would not do. So the solution is, and this is the world uh, we live in now, listeners, is to set a time, a time that that is the true time, the one true time to rule them all and we're still having some disputes about this in terms of uh daylight savings time and everything but at some point someone just notified you that it was now yeah. when the sun was at the top of the sky it was now twelve thirty-seven, and it wasn't mm-hmm. the government that did this the government came along later but it was the railroads it was the capitalists yeah. who just decided here's what time it is now and
1: mm-hmm. in this film and that was yeah yeah, go ahead. yeah go please ahead. go on sorry yeah
0: well, I just saying, no, this that was film also a, is the, uh, is the moment when when some of that is happening.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was an incredible endeavor um, to to do this. I mean, you had to in the beginning work with the telegraph; otherwise, there was no chance to to do it. So, in Switzerland, but also in the United States, um, there was. They, it, it, this was done by by um, the telegraph, which sent to every to all the the telegraph stations at noon. I mean, at the idea of you know the <laughs> given at noon the, at
0: the at noon the, that had the... <laughs> been determined by the company.
1: Yeah, yeah. They they've sent the signal to all the stations, and and then that's what we try to show in the film. Then they had to check their local clocks and watches with that signal if it worked. They always had to adjust it, so it was uh, not an easy thing in the beginning to to do this. But um, especially in the in the states, there were there were many train accidents. I think in the 1880s, yes, eighteen eighties, eighteen seventies, yeah, 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 like um, uh, yeah, I mean, terrible stuff. Because uh, yeah, they had to need to find ways, of course, to organize this. Um, and I think it's not a bad thing to organize that because trains shouldn't have accidents, and trains are a nice invention too. But uh, the question, of course, is who um, who funded this and who, by funding it, was in control of it. I think that's also um, a big question that uh, we would, yeah, want, wish to raise with our film, like. Um, that uh, actually, the, the early anarchists, um, the Swiss anarchist, the, the early anarchist watchmakers in Switzerland, really tried to <clears throat> to take part in the in the setting up, let's say, of new, new technologies, in, in in using them, and sometimes even using them better than the bourgeois, you know, owning capitalist, let's say. <laughs> part of uh, margin like small part of society for example with the newspapers this is something that that we really that we really found out in the, in the research uh, with our um, historical advisor he, he wrote a book called anarchist watchmakers in Switzerland in the 19th century it's so far only in in German and in French but I am I hope it will come out in, in English soon and yeah he really found out that the anarchist newspapers in 1870s switzerland were much more um their their international correspondency network was much more was quicker more established than the than the civil bourgeois presses um correspondency network because they were already trying to create an international um, or be part of the international anarchist movement so they were communicating with sections in spain in, in the U.S., in South America, um, incredibly early. So, yeah, so let's say that the, 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 the telegraph or like press-related um, technology, they really yeah, found their ways to participate faster and better than the owning capitalists. But, um, of course, all the other, I mean, industry and technology was really quickly in, controlled or inhabited by, by the people who had the money to fund these technologies. And I think this, of course, also should <laughs> create the question about our present, how we <laughs> deal new technologies right now. Because it is also, um, I would say, very similar to the 1870s. Um, uh how do you say a a word like like um important moment in time because we have really new technologies coming up which will um Mm -hmm. define a lot about our yeah in the end organizing how how we organize ourselves together Mm -hmm. and um the question is now as it is in the 1870s who is Funding this, and then in charge of it, or in, in, in control of it, and what waste do we have to yeah. also be part of it?
0: Yeah, I, there's someone. It might be it might be Mark Twain. There's someone who has the joke: history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, I don't remember who says this, but <laughs> it does seem like we are in a we're in a rhyming <laughs> moment. To, to that's to, am- to that's they, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh i love it yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll find <laughs> to actually i'll find it's it's maybe it's just going to be some quote on the internet that gets attributed to mark twain but you know i think i think that makes complete sense i mean uh it does seem to me i mean i've been working on the late 19th century for decades because i do think we're in a a, a similar pivot point a similar moment of, of a rhyme and yeah. you know there's a very easy whiggish progressive narrative Dreiser even uses it to a certain extent which is like the capitalists take over. They knit everything together. They take complete control, but they also build lots of really nice stuff, like trains and the telegraph. And now, then the progressive age comes along, and we seize it for ourselves. And man, if that's what's if it, if that's going to rhyme, uh, some of the seizing needs to start happening right now. And I'm not I'm not I'm not seeing that right now. I'm not seeing the people grabbing the world that the capitalists have knit together and i guess if you're a true mm-hmm. like marxist or hegelian thesis antithesis person you're just saying wait 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 a little bit and then the and then it will come but i'm you know uh, i'm i'm still waiting <laughs> I'm, I'm still waiting for the moment where we sure. see some of this power <laughs> back um, yeah, yeah 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 the other thing um that i wanted to touch on in terms of you're absolutely right uh, the the other element that I wanted to point out in terms of that telegram thing is how everyone falls apart when the telegraph service is out. No one knows what to do and there are all these people, there's the anarchists and also the business people and all the government and they just sort of stand together and they say, what are we going to do without our technology? And every time, you know, there was that famous—I guess maybe 15 years ago—there was a BlackBerry outage, and they, this was back when all of the Wall Street executives were using Blackberries, and just like the world shut down briefly. I, I had a meltdown. I listened to music while I um, while I write, and uh, my Spotify Spotify was down a couple of weeks ago and i couldn't write a script because i didn't have music to listen to which is something that we think of in 2022 oh if the internet goes down we can't do our work but in 1877 sure. also when the when the late 19th century internet went down people didn't know what time it
1: was yeah 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 and they could not transfer any money anymore any longer which was Ooh, now that's as quickly doing. as you as you, yeah that's doom of course i mean as quickly, and that's crazy with with this this kind of technologies. That yeah, as you say, even in the eighteen seventies, it they became so quickly so important to organize. You know, trading watches, uh, exporting watches to 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 the world. Um, yeah, you need to. It's also funny. The first, I mean, the first recorded telegraph in in this town where the anarchist watchmaking movement was active um sent the first ever recorded telegraph um telegram was was a telegram from from the the brother of the factory director of the factory owner uh, <laughs> yeah with pure like uh, you know economical content like just uh, describing the situation of the, mar- of the of 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 the of the market in in the US he was living in 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 New York and saying yeah. um yeah, which models needed to be changed and stuff like that, you know, because they were already, you know, presented by another company in that time, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, very quickly, very important.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important. I want to go back to something you said earlier there. There's yeah. this myth that people like um, Occupy Wall Street, the battle in Seattle, David Graeber, that they are against globalization. That, that, that's you know, that movement was always described as, anti-globalization. And Graver would sometimes say, you know, maybe alter globalization. Like, the anarchists are quite happy to knit the world together. They are not against that. Of course, you've got your Luddites, your Unabombers, whatever. But I mean, they're extremists in every movement and I will give them no more time. Um, The anarchists in general have, have liked new forms of organizing things. They're just asking the question that you're asking in this film and that you've asked in this interview why is so and so in charge of it why are they in in control of it why if we have trains and telegraphs do they have to be run by the corporations for the corporations um some people of course are just anti-train but i like trains a lot (laughs) but it seems like of course no they're great (laughs) the wrong people are 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 in charge of them well the train i mean now the. know the airlines whatever it seems like people cannot get what they need from these new technologies and when they ask for what they need the answer is always well you know some sort of grassroots collective could not organize this way only we the capitalists can organize this way which one you've shown in this movie (laughs) that there are plenty of moments in time where the the grassroots is always more efficient and more effective than the top-down model. And the other thing is, what the fuck have the capitalists ever done that we should trust them with running the world? I mean, why do we keep having economic crashes. Uh, were the capitalists not in charge when the trains were running into each other? I think I think the capitalists probably were. And <laughs> it seems to me that if the mm-hmm. towns had been trying to develop a system, they might not have been so uh, casual about having a decade of train accidents before they, before they fixed this. At least that's... That that's my sense of it.
1: Yeah, but you know, yeah, it's fun. It's funny because okay, I'm not a, like an academic or anything like that. I've really just I feel like all I can do is try to make films. But by making this film, um, this or let's say, the guy, I mean the the people who appear in the film are all. Like in my first movie, and in my short films, mostly they're all non professional actors. they are like friends of mine or real watchmakers or people from my family who by the way, were also watchmakers but um but I remember when choosing um the role of the biggest capitalist in the film the the the, the director, the owner of the of the watch factory um well, first I spoke to 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 my grand-uncle and grand who were still alive, who were working actually in a watch factory as, as precision mechanics, as a, like working class people. And I asked them about the, the guy, like the, 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 the boss of it all, you know, the director of the company, and they were telling me, yeah, he was such a nice person he took care of everybody you know he i mean and he had big responsibility imagine you know stuff like that and it it was really surprising or striking to me this kind of i would like i i recently i i i I called it um uh um how do you say in english um Oppressive charity, I would say. I would call it, you know. Yeah, we, like call, it pater- we call it. We call paternalism. Is what we call it. Paternalism. Yeah, paternalism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so like oh, the, bo- the But I think. That, yeah, but I think this this kind of charitable um, aspect of 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 so called capitalists, you know, because I want to say so called because I'll get to that later, but this kind of um, that they were also caring or or or. Um, trying to show that they were caring, um, yeah. And this oppressive or suppressive care is really interesting to me. So when when I when the question came up, who of my friends or who will um, embody a 19th century watch factory <laughs> director owner? Who could that be? I did not come up with, like, a guy uh, really unnice or really brutal looking or, or you know, what whatever, like, this, as you could come up with it, but I chose a very dear friend of mine who is just, he's also a film director, who is just really good in in being nice to people, let's say, I hope he doesn't hear this, but like, he gets the most out of people by being nice to people, you know, which you have to also sometimes, of course, when you make movies. And I just told him, just do this, you know, just be as charming as you always are, be as nice and sweet, because I guess that's, yeah, that's how I've imagined this a bit, like this kind of capitalist in the 19th century and not like this very, um yeah you know like brutal violent person and i think that's the more i I was thinking about everything or like uh, thinking about a watch factory or my own family who worked in factories that um and that's that's and i'm saying this because i'm really not an academic maybe i'm saying something really stupid but i mean In the end, what's so shocking to me, thinking of my family who worked their asses off in a factory and, you know, didn't earn shit until the 1940s uh, or 50s, and that there's, it seems like there is nobody to blame, you know, there's like, yeah, it just happened that way, you know, and that's so smart, I guess, about this um, capitalist engine or machine that is rolling, that it's so hard to blame, really, in the end, people or or individuals. And when I was thinking that it came up, it came to me while filming the film, that the women in the film performing the work of the Unrest production, Unrest in, in, in Swiss German, Unruhe, is the heart of the watch, balance wheel uh, in English, that it's funny that the that the so-called heart of the watch, that center of the mechanism, is this kind of spastic, weird-looking wheel. It makes these weird, spastic. I don't want to say spastic, but like uncontrollable movements. It looks like out of pace. It doesn't look right. You know, it looks like. Um, yeah, I mean you can you can you can uh, try to find it online. You you'll see the image, you know. It it moves in really strange ways. The heart this heart of the watch. And in some way to speak, the heart of also capitalism, because the watches you need, you know, to in order to organize early industrial capitalism, you need clocks and watches to make to optimize the production process it is essential to, to any kind of production, I guess, in the beginnings of industrial capitalism. So yeah, so this is really, yeah, all these things came together and just made me wonder who actually is behind all of this. And the fact that it's not easy to answer that um, was important for me to making this film, when making this film, to kind of have this, yeah, I don't want to call it alienation only, but like kind of an eerie um, in betweenness between the people <laughs> trying to, to handle all of this in the 1870s, trying to handle um, new situations, uh, new technologies, um, this sudden organization of labor and time when you have to work that it's you know blah 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 how do you do this how do you how do you do it together as human bodies and beings and what yeah and then what <laughs> this is this is it then, <laughs> then what then what are we doing what are we doing here and what else could you know what other things could we be doing yeah uh, there's-
0: there's so much there that you said that I would like to respond to. I guess the first thing I need to say is weigh in as as the academic and just say you're you're absolutely mm. right about the about the paternalism or whatever we want to call it. Um, mm. So as, a, as an academic who studied this era, although not in Europe, yeah, you've got it completely right. Um, the idea mm. was the 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 benevolent, father and you did I told my wife after the film ended that maybe my favorite part was this portrayal of this kind gentle loving family man pillar of the community and I mean he fired people for being anarchists and he sent his inspectors to you know watch the the people and you know record Mm -hmm. them and put them on an improvement Mm -hmm. plan and dock their wages Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. His business was bad you know that had nothing to do with mm. him he just had you know his orders were declining so you know it doesn't seem like he's going to take on any suffering except the true suffering of mm. the heart that we know he didn't want to fire these workers it just that was just business and he truly cared about them but the other word i mean you know this is this is all subtext mm. in the film but it's always the, the, yeah. it, it's always how it goes one of the famous famous novels uh, in the late 19th century or maybe early 20th century about this process is called the octopus. It's by this American writer Frank Norris, who was incredibly famous in his day, but is mostly forgotten. And okay. the octopus is the railroad that's going everywhere and snatching everything up. And finally a member of this community where it's set breaks in to the railroad president's office with a gun and is going to kill him. And the railroad president Cyril says precisely what you said. And it's like you you think I have any choice over this? Do you think killing me is going to make a difference? The railroad's coming mm-hmm. and it's gonna suck up all your profits no matter what I do. And this is this is a very frustrating element, isn't it? Yeah. Bad, bad things are happening, but it just it's very hard to locate the the center. Um and you know, the sort yeah. of anarchist response is, you know, that's because there is no center and we are we are collectively agreeing to this, whether we yeah. whether we like it or not. We are collectively agreeing to this. And part of the thing that makes us agree to this is this belief, whether it's Carnegie or Pullman or Jeff Bezos, uh, well Bezos a little bit less, but let's say Bill Gates, that they are gonna take you know, they're, they're so stressed out because now that they have these billions of dollars, they're going to do such nice things for us and end malaria or whatever. And boy, mm. it would suck to be them. Mm. Their life is so stressful. And that's, that I think is why we consent to it precisely because of this,
1: this paternalism. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah, think that's yeah. changed much. No, not at all. And I mean, yeah, I mean, this word paternalism brings me to, the, to, the, to, to, to another idea or a point which um which is so crazy that you think if 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 so much has been constructed of our nowness of our present in the 1870s 1860s 1880s i mean how we in europe the the beginnings of national of the national states beginnings of um of, of public of, of schooling you know that that children had to go to school all these things that were that were created constructed were so in in a time which was still so paternalized can you say this like so man oriented paternalistic is probably that, <laughs> yeah, patriarchal paternalistic. yeah patriarchal paternalistic and yeah how it's crazy how we reproduce these um these uh, patterns um until today as you say with of course jeff bezos blah 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 and um, all these people but also in many other fields and this was also important to me to um try at least to imagine what um women working in the factories in switzerland but also um, in the us a lot of women were working in the watch vac- in american watch factories also um, how they organized their their um, their time their um, life and what's really interesting in switzerland is that the first, when you were an unmarried it comes it, it appears in the film but really uh, in a marginal moment but maybe some people will, will see it is that the first like when you were an, an not unmarried woman working in a in a in a in a watch factory or in any factory in the 1870s in switzerland you had no right to have a, a health insurance you were not entitled to have any health insurance by the factory or by the by the government or by the local municipality whatever so the 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 anarchist cooperative in 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 those areas in the watchmaking areas were the first to give health insurance to unmarried women which is really incredible if you think of it because that was important you know when you are working 12 hours a day in a factory and it's dangerous for your eyes for your nervous nervous nerve, know, system and so on. you need uh, you need some kind of insurance so um, yeah those are little things in, in history but I think it's interesting yeah what happened
0: yeah I kids. think I think I'm not gonna gonna pick up the gender angle at this moment because I could speak about it for hours but you're
1: yeah you're,
0: you're absolutely right and it is I guess the one thing mm. I was I said I wasn't gonna do it now I'm gonna talk about it a little bit it is very interesting when you get this collision of this paternalistic view of of women and then women as, and as wage workers or even something resembling wage slaves and it it does not it does not work um and and the of course some of the left wing women who were you know wealthy and educated and all of the all of the working women from that period that we hear from say this. Like you 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 are treating me like I am supposed to be this person who is not involved in the public sphere and I'm just supposed to sit somewhere and be pampered. And yet you are mm-hmm. not providing me any resources. So the the women are in a double bind. The women workers are in a double bind. They are treated as badly as the men, but then the men have a certain amount of privileges and protections and of ways of making it in the world, and then the women are not given those either. And that is, uh, mm. it's, it's 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 hard to even grasp. I think from our from our perspective, like the statement, I'm familiar with things like this, but the statement that un, unmarried women. You know, would not be insured. It, it does not make sense mm-hmm. unless you understand the way that these women were caught between capitalism and a sort of, you know, domestic sphere image of woman, and they were allowed to inhabit neither space fully. They get sort of the worst of of both of those things. Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I think you yeah. captured
1: that really well in the movie.
0: Mm. I mean, speaking and in a, that
1: sense, it's terrible that the factory director is dismissing, you know, the the part of the like the women who, who are who, who, who participate in the anarchist cooperative, which is what happened. That's that's like incredible. It's a crime.
0: Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course, it's a it's a crime. I mean, capitalism is mm. I, I sometimes call it legal plunder. It's a it's 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 a yeah. crime, you know, it's robbery. And yet it's all it's all above board. Um, Mm. But before we go, because our time is drawing to a close, I want to go all the way back to where I started and talk about cinematography. Um, I mean, I have some thoughts about the editing, but really I just want to talk to you about, you know, so many of your shots are, I mean, I might call them extreme wide shots, and then so many of them are extreme close-ups, especially uh, on on the machinery. So we get these Moments where a bit of machinery, the onrula, maybe a drill bit, are are filling the screen, and then we get these moments where uh, maybe Kropotkin and uh, Josephine—I don't remember the name of the main—yeah,
1: yeah, Kropotkin yeah.
0: and Josephine are having a conversation, and the dialogue is following them. But it looks like a Bruegel painting, like where there's you know all sorts of people doing all sorts of things in the village, and you can finally just like in the Bruegel where you can. You can zoom in and find this one interesting thing that you're interested in. Kropotkin and Josephine are over there in some corner of this Bruegel-like composition, speaking. But you're getting their dialogue, and so I just—I uh, I thought that was delightful. I, I enjoyed it, but I wanted to hear what you what you thought about that that choice, and maybe are, are other people liking it? Cause, because 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 there's a the possibility that your film is alienating, right? I mean, you you can't <laughs> not be aware of that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, um, wow, there's many things to say. But I mean, um, I guess in the first place, I mean, to come up with this with these kind of choices of how how um, we as a collective making this film, but also me myself, of course, would, would, would choose such uh, angles or really wide angles really close up maybe unusual images that that goes back some time that i just tried to find ways of filming or establish a method that that would feel um, good to me that i could my sort of yeah maybe my experience in in the world bring how I, i could bring it to a film so i slowly came up with this kind of those kind of images mm, and but i was aware of that especially in a, in a so-called like in this historical context that it could maybe look a bit strange to people or um, yeah but um it's i mean it's really important to me and not only like in this Brecht, brechtian way to but also in my, our own kind of ways to n- to not try to seduce the the spectators the people watching a film but um letting them be or let us be aware that we look at a constructed image and um, yeah, and bring up the question how, how what is this? How do we deal with this? Um, yeah, this is really important to me and but not only because of this maybe the, the images seem a bit unusual. Um, of course, I also like the idea that um, that uh, characters you know maybe I also have to mention quickly um, Ursula K Le. Le she wrote an essay called um, um, The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, which I really like, where she talks so interestingly about um, heroes, the, the the history of heroes and the, the need for a conflict in stories and and that this is also really much construction, um, that it, there need to be heroes and there needs to be a conflict in a, in a story. but. She asked, "Could there be also just tricks rather than conflicts? You know, and what are actually heroes?" Mm. So it's really important to me to to not really have so protagonists or heroes in that kind of sense, but show that we. You you said it before that there are no centers really. You know that we that we live in an incredible um, beautiful mess of of, of <laughs> connecting dots. <laughs> Um, yeah, together creating an idea of of a world and um, so when they meet for the first time those two characters, Pyotr and Josephine, um, that they are not just like the spotlight is on them and everything else disappears but much more um, just a city continuing a uh, small watchmaking town city, continuing to do what's what it's doing and producing and people walking around, and they are also just walking around and doing what they're doing and they meet and then they go on and that that's it. I mean, yeah, to sort of maybe decentralize the, the focus a bit uh, on uh, what is yeah called cinematic space, but sort of, yeah, spread it, maybe.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds great. I mean, I think that accords with the fact that you've got, you've got the man, Propotkin, who is the who is the center of the anarchist movement, at least as as us academics tell the story. Um, and he's, he's not central, I mean, he's central to this film in a certain way he and Josephine, but it's not this is not a story of a hero. Um, if you no. haven't seen the movie yet, I highly recommend it. But don't go into it looking for Kropotkin making big speeches and then the anarchists rising up and and throwing the director out. That's that is not what is going to happen uh, in this movie. Um, I do think, though, especially for people who are not familiar with with Brecht, we we should you know briefly raise this idea. So this Brecht argues when he's writing about theater, not cinema, but it's been taken up by innumerable filmmakers since then that if the sort of default mode is to tell a really exciting story that engages the audience that absorbs the audience and is and is going somewhere his his alienating idea is that the audience can can sit back and absorb the story it's not going anywhere it is something to be observed thought about and then the action such as there is action takes place not on the screen, but first in the spectator's mind and then the spectator's life. They walk out of the theater and then when they when they pull out their cell phone and someone says, oh, we're all obsessed with our devices and we, we're we all interconnected now, the spectator thinks, well, yes, but uh, the, those devices were being made in the 19th century also in, in Switzerland. That's the kind of thing you're supposed to get in this Brechtian Mode as opposed to thinking, yes, the good guys won. This is not a movie where anyone wins or loses. Although the the women who get fired are certainly losers, but it, but we don't see a conclusion to this narrative. It doesn't have a happy or a sad ending. It doesn't uh, have a plot, which again Brecht is against plot in that sense. Um, and in that respect, yeah, I can't imagine um, how people who whose only <laughs> intake of films is you know the traditional movies is going to respond to that. But I imagine. Not many of those people will be watching this movie, and I found it just, uh, just enchanting, Cyril. Just enchanting.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, maybe one last thing I would like to to say is that um, from from a from a, an anarchist perspective, from the eighteen seventies, I think the idea to create uh, or to put spotlight on these figures like Bakunin, Kropotkin, you know. I don't know if that is accurate or or like if that is matching with their ideas because it's also a kind of centralization or sense cent, you know centering on 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 stuff and on 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 things and, and not decentralize it and it was really important to not you know put you know not, not create like yeah like like a like a battle or like an uprise in the film, which we have seen in so many films, but um something that was really important to me in the research process of the film was um the French philosopher and she was uh an anarcho syndicalist as well Simone Weil I don't know if you've heard about her but yes, um yes. Sure yeah she really said something amazing i think she said uh, not the religion is the opium for the people but revolution is opium for the people and that is really interesting if you think of some part of anarchism in the 1870s that they started to to really go for the idea of a revolution which of course is how do you call eschatological you know it's kind of you know has it's it has very big similarities to ideas of paradise and, and religious ideas that one day there will be the revolution and we'll all be saved and it's going to be fantastic but um, to sort of find little revolutions between us you know and really organizing our life together which actually this is what happened in those watchmaking communities they found ways how to yeah as we said before you know um, create uh, you know a cooperative and health insurance for unmarried you know working women and that's one of, of many things that that they were coming up with or how to organize you know they they created tombolas and 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 you know and then you know transferred part of the capital which was you know made, created in in this town to strike um um to strike uh, movements in the US or in or in Belgium by the time or in Barcelona in, in Spain yeah so I think the film tells not the common, um, uh, (laughs) not the common revolutionary tales, but um, the the marginal, but even more important, um, um, small, let's maybe not even call it revolutionary, but tales, you know, um, who changed a lot at that time.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I do think you've achieved that in the film. I do think you're right. Kropotkin would not want to be would not want to be centered um, in in the way that in the way that he did certainly. Um, and yeah. then you know, there's a French Russian uh, anarchist writer who joined the Bolsheviks and then became a Trotskyist. His name is Victor Serge. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce it. If it's Serge or Sergei. and he says in this in this moment this is a few decades later the people who were the most revolutionary became so revolutionary that they gave up on the idea of revolution and just started making the revolution in their everyday life. And this, this podcast is called everyday anarchism for that, for that reason, you can make the revolution in your everyday life, make it in your town, make it it it. in your factory, make it in your family. And then the big revolution comes and it is many little revolutions and what is more what is more anarchic than that?
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: Thank you, thank you, Cyril. Such thank a thank you, you so much. I will do whatever I can to get the thank word out Graham. about this film.
1: <laughs> thank you, man.